Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Bible Breakdown. Very excited to be jumping back in with us this week. Um, for those who are around the solid rock world, you know this week was VBS. So if I sound a little hoarse or I lose my voice at any point, you will have no questions as to why. There was lots of yelling and screaming, a lot more zoology information than I thought I would need. And uh, I showed that was not my strong suit subject wise, but we had a great time, got to teach lots of the kiddos about Jesus and about how Jesus power can uh, help us do hard things, how Jesus power gives us hope, how Jesus power makes us bold, how Jesus power makes us good friends. So we got to talk all about that. And so today we are going to talk, continue talking about Paul, who actually got a pretty good run in VBS as well. We talked about um, his Damascus Road experience which we're actually going to touch on today as part of Paul telling his story. We also talked about uh, toward the end of Acts, he's going to have an incident. I'm not going to spoil it for you. You know what? You're just going to have to wait until the Bible breakdown over it. But we talked about it at VBS. So that is what has been going on. And we are going to be in Acts 23 or 22 and 23 today. So finished last week toward the end of 21 and Paul is having a tough time. He's in Jerusalem um, after the end of his third missionary journey. And you may remember that he's gone back to Jerusalem, feels strongly that that's where the Lord is calling him, but he's also received uh, multiple prophecies, multiple kind of people's fears that bad things are going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. He knows it. He says, I'm willing even to die um, to do what God wants me to do. So that's basically where he's at. Um, he is being he has been arrested in the temple. A whole lot of hubbub amongst the uh, the Jews in the temple, and he is going to still have an opportunity to defend himself. And we're going to see how that all plays out in these chapters. So um, he goes to the temple in Jerusalem originally to try to explain Jesus to them, like he did often. We talked last week how he would go to a lot of these temple synagogues. And he would try to explain Jesus to the Jews, and often he would be rebuffed, but then he uh, had a lot of success amongst the Gentiles, which we know that that's what the Lord had called him to. So um, there's going to be some talk about that, and we're going to talk a little bit about what it what it means, what it looks like to be instruments of God, both um, as believers and even the way that the Lord uses um, unbelievers for his glory. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. So in chapter 22, um, right here at the Uh, end of 21 and into 22, Paul is being um, taken by this, uh, by this Roman leader, a tribune. Um, He has been arrested and he's being taken to the barracks and he's asking basically for this opportunity to speak to the people and he gets his permission. Um, The tribune asks him, are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, he's no, that's, that's not me. So if you don't mind, since I'm not the guy who has 4,000 assassins in his employ, maybe I could have a second to talk. And so he gets his permission, I guess, for that reason, now knowing that he's not quite so dangerous. Um, but so he does get this opportunity to speak as he's on these steps up on the way to the barracks, um, an opportunity to speak to this assembly. And so basically he kind of tells them his story. So he tells them about how he was brought up in strict Judaism. He 
talks about how he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, who is a um, very prominent rabbi of the time. So someone that they would know, a name they'd know, and a person they would know would have taught him well in the ways of Judaism. Not that, not some guy with some crazy ideas, but this is a well-respected rabbi. Um, he even tells them about how he was so zealous um, for God, just as he's saying, I know that you're doing this out of zeal for God. He's like, because I had that same zeal, I persecuted Christians. And whenever Christians were, I was hearing about where Christians were, I was going there so I could persecute them. So he's basically admitting like, I'm like right where, I was right where you are right now. Um, but then he talks about his Damascus Road experience. He tells a them about how he was on his way to go and persecute more Christians and that the Lord appeared to him and said, why are you persecuting me? And tells them about uh, when he is, he's blinded, how Jesus tells him that he is going to be appointed for a great work. And then he goes to Ananias, Ananias um, heals the blindness as a result of that encounter. Um, and then he talks about how the Lord tells him that they're not going to accept his testimony in Jerusalem and that he's going to go to the Gentiles. So he basically kind of gives them the very, very short version of what he went through right after his conversion. So we know that Paul had one thing in mind and he had this radical experience that totally changed him. And the reality was that in Jerusalem, he didn't have quite the, uh, his reputation was a little bit hurt there to be preaching about Jesus. Cause I think it would be pretty easy for people to think that he was um, maybe even trying to trap Christians by pretending to speak like them or that the people who he had persecuted Christians with might be suspicious. So this is all, all of this part that we've read so far is him describing what it was like when he first became believed in Jesus. So he's telling them all about that. And then he tells them and, at the end of this kind of story he's telling that he knows that God has sent him to the Gentiles. And so it says in verse 22, it says up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks. So basically they're like listening to him and it seems like they're even willing to listen to what he's saying. But then he talks about being sent to the Gentiles and that makes them just like mob angry. And so the tribune has to take him uh, into the barracks for his own protection. So ultimately the tribune who has kind of been sent as an arresting figure turns out to be kind of a, a savior of sorts for Paul protecting him from the mob that is very upset. And so, what we see from this is that he's they're very upset because the Jews that he's talking to feel like he's kind of he's maybe blaspheming by saying that the Lord said something he didn't or they may just be generally angry again at this idea that um, God had made a, a way made a plan of salvation for the Gentiles and not just for his people the Jews um, that was not something that the Jews were really totally okay with. And as we know, even the Jews who had accepted Jesus had a really tough time reconciling the fact that, um, that Gentiles were being saved as well. So you can imagine that those who didn't believe in Jesus, who hadn't heard the stories that um, Jewish believers had heard, could think that this is absolutely no way 
God would not tell you to do that. So they're very upset at this idea that Paul thinks that he has this mission to the Gentiles, that Gentiles are going to be included in God's plan of salvation, whereas the Jews think it's just for them. So, and of course, they also took, believe in a totally different plan of salvation. These are not Jews who currently believe in Jesus. So um, they get crazy mob angry. Um, this shouting and throwing off their cloaks, it it's not, uh, and flinging dust in the air, It's it kind of reminds you some of the language that they're using kind of reminds you of like, oh, they all took off their cloaks to stone Stephen. So it, it makes it seem like, okay, there was about to be violence happening. And that's why the tribune uh, inter- intercedes and um, gets in there and saves Paul and brings him out. So um, once he's kind of got him to safety, he is very curious as to why this is happening. Cause you can imagine for this guy who doesn't understand all the nuances that are going on in this conversation or all the nuances of the Jewish faith, he's probably like, okay, there must be something more that they're upset about than just some like dispute over who this person is or whether the message can go to the Gentiles. He's probably not really understanding fully that. So he thinks probably something more is going on. So what he does is he goes ahead and gets him tied up to be, flogged so he's going to get his information out of paul and it's basically the way it sounds in uh, verse 24 it says the tribune ordered him to be brought to the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this and then verse 25 but when they had stretched him out for the whips paul said so it sounds like he was already like in position like about to be flogged before paul drops this little nugget on him and says, wait, 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 just a minute. Paul said to the centurion who is standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. So uh, we find out, well, So Paul mentions, um, I think it's chapter 16 of Acts that this comes up when he's with Silas. He talks about how they're both Roman citizens and it's a little uh, in the same way. It's kind of a a defensive move. Um, So this is not the first time we've seen this, but this is probably the time where we realize, okay, like he must not just be bluffing, like because it was good enough for this tribune. He's going to tell him kind of about it. But Paul is a Roman citizen. So we know that Paul is Jewish and just because he was born in Israel at the time of Roman occupation would not have made him a, a citizen because, I mean, think about all the other people that are his contemporaries in the church. None of them are going around saying, well, I'm a Roman citizen too. So it's most likely that Paul had a very influential family. His family probably had an influential position because again, we know that he is Jewish um, and he says he was a citizen by birth. So it must've been related to something that his family had done some sort of position they had. Um, Even the fact that he was born um, in Tarsus is not necessarily a a reason that he would be made a citizen by birth. Um, But it's likely that um, there was some circumstance that we don't fully understand or know that led to Paul being a citizen. But apparently he is. And it has gotten him out of this beating. So they believe in, there's a couple different ways that a person might have proven that they were a citizen. One is they might carry some sort of parchment, um, but you can imagine carrying a parchment long-term that's really going to get real crinkle city. 
Um, they also had these little wooden things that would indicate that. And it was pretty rare um, from what I've read in some commentaries, one by Dr. Uh, Daryl Bach, um, who's a New Testament scholar. He said it'd be pretty rare for somebody to carry around proof that they were a citizen, but you can imagine in Paul's situation, how it'd be pretty helpful. So um, apparently either he shows them this uh, information or they just believe him because they know um, if he was lying about it and got caught that he'd be in huge trouble. So whether he had this parchment, had this wooden thing that indicated he was a citizen or they just believed him, either way, it works out for Paul. And so they do not whip him because that is no bueno for uh, Roman citizens. They're not allowed to do that for someone who is uncondemned. And so there's, it's interesting too, that in all the things that Paul's gone through, that this is like one of the first times we really talk about it. Um, and you can imagine that there may have even been a time earlier in this little story that he might've thought, oh, this could be useful information, but it, it may have been that Paul already knew he was on thin ice with his audience there in the temple. And so using that moment um, to tell the soldiers who were rescuing him that he was a citizen could have just given really the crowd another reason not to like him. So um, he waits kind of till they're in this like private situation. It's just him and a bunch of Roman soldiers. There's no, probably no uh, people from the council, from the temple, no Jewish people that were there. Um, so he probably waits for that reason, just so his witness isn't hurt even more. I mean, all he had to say was, God sent me to the Gentiles and they're all whipping their cloaks around. You can only imagine if he was like, oh, and I'm a privileged Roman citizen too. Then you could really imagine how they would think, oh, clearly he is not following our God. He is just some sort of Gentile sympathizer, you know, which he is a Gentile sympathizer, but God wanted him to be, so it's okay. So anyways, they do not flog him, but at the same time, the tribune is still wanting to know what is going on. Like, again, why are these people so upset about him that he's not understanding fully the nuances of what's going on. Paul probably can't explain all of it to him, just knowing how much depth there is to fully understand the situation. We've got a whole 21 chapters before this to understand the situation. The tribune may not have that kind of time. So he calls together, he tells the council, um, the people from the temple, Pharisees, Sadducees, high priests, he says, y'all are going to meet again. And I really would like to, y'all to talk so I can understand what exactly is going on here. So starting in chapter 23, um, we see a little bit of what happens in this council. So starting in verse one, it says, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to, up to this day. And the high priest Ananias came, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. So he's in this council. 
Um, and he is basically saying that he's innocent. The high priest, Ananias, obviously different Ananias than the one who helped him, healed him from his blindness instead of punching him in the mouth. Uh, he has him struck on the mouth. Paul, understandably angry, kind of lashes out at the high priest. They're like, don't do that, that he's the high priest. And he's like, I'm sorry, I didn't know. So even there you see Paul showing like some deference, some... Um, um, you can see him showing some respect to even this person who is having him struck and kind of basically putting him in a quasi trial um, and recognizing that God has asked that they not revile their, their rulers. So as that's happening, um, so things are already kind of going poorly for Paul at the beginning of this. And so um, it seems like with this move that he's talking about the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And um, that's obviously an important part of our gospel, right? The, the hope that we have that um, death is not the end for us, but that we have eternal life with Jesus, um, that he was resurrected and that we too will be resurrected. That is all part of the gospel and something that Paul's preaching. But he also knows that this will be something that's fairly divisive amongst the group. And I, it's interesting. It's hard to know exactly what his motives here were. I think there's a couple of things maybe at play. So one, he may have been trying to get the Pharisees um, on his side to see, hey, like this is something that's important to us when we argue with this other group. Like, hey, let's hear this guy out because he's talking about resurrection of the dead and we believe in that. So it may have been one. He may have been kind of making a play to um, gain some some allies in the council. So maybe he'd get a little more time to be able to uh, share. Um, the other is that maybe he's trying to take some attention off himself by having them, you know, they'll like make them fight and sneak away in the night kind of deal. Um, so again, it's hard to judge uh, motives when we're not given them in the text and nor is it um, wise for us to do so. But um, so the Pharisees and Sadducees start arguing. So verse eight gives us a, a pretty good amount of explanation for why it caused such a dispute. But um, here's something else to know about Pharisees and Sadducees. So they're obviously major figures in Jesus ministry. They, they're popping up in Paul's ministry. They're opponents of Christianity. Those who are really devout are typically opponents. So the Pharisees were typically, um, they were a group that was revered by the people for their piety. They were revered for their piety. They were the ones who um, really sought to protect the law. And by protect the law, I mean, keep the nation from violating the law that led to them being exiled back way back before um, when the Babylonians took over Jerusalem about 586 BC. This is sometime in the first few decades of uh, AD. So, you know, it's been about 600 years, but ultimately the Pharisees had a major, their big thing was we got to make some laws to go around the law. So we don't get anywhere close to breaking the law or else we're going to lose our land again. That's basically where the Pharisees are coming from. And for that reason, um, they were very, um, they were very culturally sensitive. They valued their, their law, they valued their customs. And so Pharisees were seen as these people who were doing the, the best they can to uphold Judaism, to uphold the historical faith that the people of Israel have had. And so they are viewed as these really pious people and people who are seeking to uphold God's law, even though Jesus is going to condemn them for the methodology that they go about it. Um, they don't, they aren't necessarily people who just want, you know, evil. And I think we can kind of get that sometimes from, 
uh, from the New Testament. Sometimes we can feel like, oh, the Pharisees are just bad guys all the time. They had misplaced zeal, just like Paul, right? So that's what we see. He had that zeal, but his was misplaced when it was placed in the right place with the gospel. Um, you see what he accomplished. So you've got those Pharisees who are really there. You would consider them very conservative in terms of uh, how they adhered to Judaism. The Sadducees were more, we need to get along to get by. So the Sadducees are going to be ones that are going to integrate more into the culture. They're going to, um, they're going to maybe concede a little bit of what they would choose, their tradition, traditions, the law, in order to keep the peace. And a lot of that has to do, it's similar, like we don't want to lose our place again. Uh, but they go about it in a very different way. And then they did have these different beliefs. So Pharisees, you can see why um, Paul, as a Pharisee, believed um, Nicodemus from John 3. You may remember he's a Pharisee who's like, hey, there's some Pharisees that are actually really interested in what you're saying, Jesus. Um, you can see how they would have an easier path to believing in the gospel than the Sadducees. Because if the Sadducees don't believe in uh, resurrection or an eternal spirit, um, then you've already kind of, you've got to get over those hurdles with them before you can even get to the point where Jesus is the one who allows for resurrection, that Jesus himself resurrected, that our spirits can live forever with Jesus, um, that we can uh, be resurrected bodily and in, in spirit. So um, you can imagine that it's easier for Pharisees kind of get on board. But all that to say, um, they start arguing, and whether it was his intention or not, we see actually that some of the Pharisees start to uh, be a little bit more sympathetic to Paul's cause. So it says um, in verse 9, Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? So you see there's no, still no um, admission that Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus Road. I don't think they're quite there yet, but they're recognizing, like, hey, maybe he did receive some special revelation that he should be going to the Gentiles. And part of it is, well, hey, he believes in resurrection. So we've already got an ally in that. And so, uh, but however, this, uh, this disagreement turns very sour, and it's to the point where the tribune is, again, fearful that Paul will be caught in the middle and perhaps killed. And so he is going to um, pull him away again. And with a goal, it seems like that um, he's just trying to protect Paul. But then uh, some of the people that were at that council that day, some of the Jews, they form this plot to get the tribune to bring Paul back. And then they are going to ambush him. So, they talk to the leaders of the council, probably including Ananias, the high priest, and maybe some of the other high-ranking figures. And they're like, hey, we're going to try to get the tribune to bring him back down here. So you got to kind of like you need to talk to him and uh, have them bring Paul. But Paul had a nephew. We learn in this passage that Paul has a sister and his sister has a son. And this nephew... Uh, he found out about this plot and he went and warned Paul. So there you go. We don't really know anything about Paul's sister or her son, but right place, right time. They show up and tell him. And so what the tribune is ultimately going to do is he's going to have him sent to the governor of the of the region, whose name is Felix. Um, and they, he's going to take him with an armed party to go to the governor. And that's where we'll end this section 
story-wise, but I did skip over 2311. It says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So um, Jesus appears to Paul and tells him, gives him a little bit of a uh, an idea of what's going on and basically tells him, your, your path is to Rome. You're going to share these same things you shared in Jerusalem that the people did not want to hear. You're going to share those things in Rome. So Paul has this uh, in front of him that Jesus is going to use him this way. And um, we see that this, um, that the nephew finding out about the plot, the tribune sending him to the governor, that's all kind of sending Paul on this path toward Rome. So that's where we end. And um, then it goes into verse 20 or into chapter 24, which I think we'll probably talk about soon. Um, but that's basically the story. Paul goes to Jerusalem um, and he's kind of in and out of this barracks of this tribune as the uh, crowd wants to fight him. They're upset that he has a message for the Gentiles. The Sadducees are upset that he's talking about the resurrection of the dead. Um, generally, they are not receiving this message well. And again, it's kind of a theme in Paul's ministry that those who are uh, who are Jews are not receiving the message that he's coming to them with. We see that Peter and John and James are going to have a lot more uh, of a ministry to um, the lost sheep of Israel, as Jesus is going to refer to them, and Paul this ministry to the Gentiles. So, as far as like, what does this mean uh, for us? What does this mean for us as people? Um, who are reading this story and, and knowing that scripture is important and that we want to apply it. I think this is a time, honestly, so the last one I called it God's sovereignty. I could have called this God's sovereignty part two, that not as if like the whole Bible couldn't be called that. But anyways, it's another really a great story in which we see how God is orchestrating events divinely. And I want to focus on um, how God uses people as instruments in a way. And I don't want it to sound like he's um, he's doing experiments on us or anything like that, or he's just kind of like a kid with an anthill who's just like, oh, I'm just going to torture these poor souls. But rather to see how God is using several moving pieces in these stories, ones that have very different opinions on um, his, uh, his chosen one in Jesus. Um, they have very different opinions. And yet we see that all these things are being orchestrated for the gospel. So um, well, first, of course, we have Paul. He kind of represents that obedient instrument, right? God is using him. God is leading him and he is answering the call and he's following. And he's doing what God is calling him to, even when other people are telling him not to. And he's very fearful. But then we also have some other figures like the tribune and the Roman soldiers. They are protecting Paul. They are now at the end of this chapter, sending Paul to a place that the Lord had appointed to him that he would go and share the gospel. So we see that even these people who can't even understand what the uh, Paul and the council are arguing about, they like literally are not even sure what's going on. You see them being used by God as these instruments to carry out his will. Even we see the council as a way of God's will being enacted. And part of it is that Paul knows that it's time to move on by the way that he's being received um, and that even though he's been faithful to, um, if, even if he's been faithful to share the gospel with them, that's not really working. And they're even instruments of a sort to uh, kind of urge these or force the hand of these soldiers to take Paul away. Um, and ultimately what we're going to see, and again, I don't want to spoil it for you, but Paul is going to get that opportunity to share the gospel in Rome. 
And so this, we're talking time during the Roman Empire, obviously, that uh, Rome is a pretty important city in the Roman Empire, right? And for Paul to have an opportunity to share the gospel in the epicenter of the world um, is just an incredible opportunity. And it wouldn't really be made possible without God orchestrating these events and using these people as instruments. I want to um, share with you just a passage from Habakkuk, a book you're probably not terribly familiar with. Um, it's just kind of hidden there in the Minor Prophets, but there's this really uh, valuable verse here in verse 5, chapter 1 of Habakkuk. It says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And so what he's telling Habakkuk is, guess what? I'm about to blow your mind. And he's talking about how he's going to use the people of Babylon as an instrument of justice on the people of Judah um, way back, like I referenced 586 BC. He's basically saying, listen, I've got divine justice and I'm even able to use an unjust nation, a people, a pagan people to enact my justice. And that's basically points back to, to God. God doesn't need people to be doing everything he asks of them in order to accomplish his will, right? He's going to accomplish his will. So the question for us today as believers is really this, are we going to be willing instruments or are we going to be unwilling instruments? Are we going to be like Paul and are we going to answer the call when God is leading us somewhere? Or are we going to be the tribune? Are we going to be the council who were in disobedience, but God's using us anyway? If we're believers, the Holy Spirit is in us and the Holy Spirit is guiding us. And we know, again, that God's sovereign will, no one's going to overcome that. But part of our sanctification, growing to be more like Jesus, is seeing God's will, seeing God's sovereignty, uh, hearing his call, feeling his pull, and obeying. And when we do that, great things happen and ultimately God gets the glory. So let's try to be like Paul, obedient, even in the face of difficulty. And less like the other people who get dragged around. But ultimately, we know God's will comes through and he's sovereign and he's good.